So as we've been saying in, in, in the book of Acts, that one of the reasons Paul wrote, at, or sorry, Luke wrote Acts, was to show um, this kind of transition from the time of when Jesus ascended into heaven into the time that the gospel was going out and that the epistles were being written. And, and Luke specifically wants to parallel Peter's ministry as a recognized apostle with Paul's ministry as someone who was being challenged to be an apostle. Like we're seeing in 2 Corinthians, where even the Corinthian church, the church that Paul planted, they were one sometimes questioning his apostleship. And so Luke is showing us why Paul's apostleship is just as valid as Peter's apostleship. And so the focus from really this point on in the book of Acts is going to be on the apostle Paul. It's going to be on how God used Paul. And so what we have going on here is basically the, the beginning of Paul's first missionary journey. And of course, at this time, Paul and Barnabas being a missionary kind of team, Barnabas seems to be leading up that team. He seems to be the one who's, who's kind of heading up that team. But that's going to switch. And we're going to see that's going to switch where Paul's heading up that team. Well, what's interesting about this is seeing this as kind of the first missionary journey that Paul is going on is that we, we do learn some lessons about what we should expect as missionaries. And in one sense, that's what all of us are. All of us are called to go and make disciples. All of us are called to go and, uh, and preach the gospel. We're all called to be missionaries. We, we, are live, we are people living in a foreign land. Our home is in heaven. And as we're in this foreign land, God's calling us to be missionaries. He wants us to be those who demonstrate the gospel by how we live and that we explain the gospel with our words. He wants us to do that. And so even if you feel like, oh, okay, I don't have any inkling to be in any kind of vocational ministry. I don't think I want to do anything like that. It doesn't matter. This still applies to you because we're all called to be missionaries. And what we're going to see in this little text, I think, is three things that every missionary needs to learn. Okay? So the first thing is this. I think every missionary needs to learn to serve locally. We see in verse 25 of chapter uh, of chapter uh, 12 that Paul and Barnabas had just returned from Jerusalem fulfilling the ministry they had put on. Of course, this is probably a reference to uh, chapter 11, verse 29, when they, they, they said, okay, we want to send support to Judea for the famine that was going to happen. And that support went to Judea with uh, in the hands of Paul and Barnabas. So they were faithful uh, to serve to, to distribute this relief. So they're faithful, you might say, in a more kind of practical ministry. And that's something that's really important. It's not an accident. It's not like, you know, uh, John had some grand plan of raising up leaders. And the way he just came up with this original scheme of having guys do grunt work before they get into leadership. No, that's what we actually see happening in the scripture. That, that, that guys who were called to serve often served in very practical ministries. We saw that earlier in the book of Acts with the deacons. They were the guys that became sort of like deacons, didn't we? We saw with both, uh, you, had, you had Philip, uh, who was a deacon, kind of distributing food among the Hellenist widows in Jerusalem. And you had Stephen as a deacon, so to speak, delivering food in the same way. And what happened? Both those guys were used mightily as preachers, as evangelists. But they started off just serving practically. And we don't want to underestimate that. And I just really want to encourage you guys and encourage you to encourage other guys. If you know people that are itching to get into ministry, man, I just want to get in there. I want to preach. I want to do all that kind of stuff. I wish John would make me a pastoral candidate. That you're going to have to do grunt work first. And the reason is there's something that you learn through that. There's something that you learn about service, about saying their needs are more important than my needs. And, and that thing is, is that practical thing, the demonstration of the gospel is, is just as valid as the proclamation of the gospel. 
And so these guys were learning to serve uh, just practically, and they were faithful in it. Well, then it talks about, as they went back to Antioch, that Luke makes it clear that we understand that in Antioch there were certain prophets and teachers. Now, there's two words in the Greek for and, two copulative words. One is a, a word that's often not translated, it's just a comma, often, okay? Another is a stronger word that is wanting to leak two ideas together. Now, you can't be dogmatic about how that works all the time. I mean, even Greek scholars would disagree how it works all the time. But it is this copulative word here. So it could be that when it says there are certain prophets and teachers, that these five guys that they name actually were both. They were both prophets and teachers, okay? Now, you got to understand what a, what a prophet is, okay? We need to understand uh, that a prophet is somebody who proclaims the revelation of God. So they say what God has said. An Old Testament prophet would have been one who would say, thus says the Lord, okay? Uh, that's more equated to what we might say as an apostle. They are speaking in the authority of God. A New Testament prophet would say, this is what God declares. They might be somebody who is kind of giving some specific revelation, and especially at this early stage in the church's history, uh, these guys were basically reading the Old Testament uh, through the lens of Jesus Christ and his resurrection and his teaching and his death and his ascension. So they're reading the Old Testament through the revelation of the gospel. And they're coming up with new doctrine. Okay, Now in that sense, let me be really clear, there are no prophets, those who are adding new doctrine. Okay, uh, But these guys were guys that were probably doing some of that. They were saying, this is what we've seen. We've read this thing in Psalm 22. And this is obviously speaking uh, prophetically of Christ's crucifixion or whatever the case might be. All right. So the prophet would proclaim God's revelation. The teacher would explain God's revelation. They would say, this is what it means. So the prophet says, this is what God says. The teacher says, this is what it means, okay? And so that would, to me, it fits perfectly, especially with that copulative word, that these guys were probably both. They were saying, this is what God says, and this is what God means. Now, the, the point, though, is here, here they are serving locally, and they're serving as a part of a ministry team. Now, when it comes to church planting, what I've experienced is I've seen lots and lots of people go out to plant churches or go out on the mission field to do missions. Lots of couples who go out on the mission field on their own and burn out. In fact, uh, one couple that Sarah and I were pretty good friends with, uh, they had, they had one, at one point been at the same church that sent us out. Uh, they're now divorced. and They're no longer walking with the Lord. They went on ministry on their own. Uh, they, they hadn't really served as a, a solid part of a, of a church team. And when they went out there, they weren't prepared, and it ended their marriage. It was a disaster. There's something about, again, us learning to serve as part of a team. I can say, and with a clear conscience, that uh, since Adam has, not even since Adam's been a pastor, but since Adam and Mike, were, we had hands laid on them as deacons, and I was sharing leadership with them. I was looking to them for counsel and confirmation and questioning in decisions I've made that not only did things go smoother in the church, but I grew tremendously in a way that uh, I, I wasn't really expecting. There's something about us serving as teams on, on a team that's really important. Understanding that this is not about one guy trying to fulfill 
one goal. This is about God doing something that he's doing that affects everyone who's involved. And these guys serve faithfully on a team. This is one of the reasons, again, didn't pull the stuff out of thin air, wasn't from a leadership book. From Scripture, we really push team leadership. And not just from, from the, the, the top down, you might say, not just among elders or deacons, but even, even among other ministries. We're really trying to move our church towards, hey, let's work together as a team, let's serve as a team. Not because we love democracy so much, but because there's something that causes us to be humble. We practice mutual submission. We, we, we're, we're accountable. We're all saying, God, what do you want to do? Because not any one of us uh, is, is the one who is always calling the shots or calling the shots without accountability. Well, these guys served along this way as a team. And it's interesting, some of these guys too, I just want to kind of sidebar for a second and kind of point out some of these guys. Of course, Barnabas was the son of encouragement. Saul is, of course, who we also refer to as the Apostle Paul. We'll see more of him in the future. But some people think the Simeon, uh, who's also called Niger, Niger means black, literally means black in the Greek. Some think this might be Simon the Cyrene, the one who carried the cross of Jesus. Don't know for sure, but it could be. Uh, interesting, uh, this, this person, uh, uh, I don't know how you really say his, pronounce his name, Mianin or whatever, how you say his name. But he grew up with Herod the Tetrarch. This is the Herod who cut off John the Baptist's head. Now, think about this, seriously. It, it, when it says that he uh, grew up with him, it's, it's, it's literally saying they grew up in the same house. They were probably raised by the same, uh, I guess they would be like slave nannies, like slaves who were taught to or who were owned by rich or wealthy uh uh, people to, to make sure their kids were educated correctly. So they had, in a sense, the same upbringing, the same education, grew up in the same household. One becomes a, a great Christ follower and a leader of the church. The other one becomes someone who chops off John the Baptist's head. Think about that for a second. So, so that kind of add that to the nurture and, and uh, nature debate, you know. It's just interesting, isn't it? It just shows that what, what also what God does in spite of the kind of upbringing we had. The point is, these guys were, were, were radically different guys, and they served together on a team, and God really used it. Now, it says in verse 2, as they ministered to the Lord and fasted. Now, some people say what this means is they were having a prayer meeting, or they were, they were having a time of praise. It was, it was a focused time. But actually, um, it could be that, but it, it could just simply mean um, that they, as they were conducting services. In fact, the word for minister there is a, is a word where we get the English word liturgy. So it could just be they're conducting services. What's cool, though, about the fact that, that Luke uses the phrase, administer unto the Lord, is it reminds us of what Jesus said in Matthew 25. If you've done it unto the least of these, my brethren, you've done it unto me. And, and again, it's really important for us to think about this. When we're serving together as a team, we can remind each other, look, this is not about us. It's not even about the people we're ministering to. It's about Jesus. We want to do this unto him. We want to love one another and love these people as he is worthy, not as we are worthy or they are worthy. So as they're, they're ministering this way, they're ministering as unto the Lord, what happens? It says they ministered to the Lord and they were fasting. Again, this is a kind of a normal habit of the early church. It wasn't a, the occasional thing they did, but they were, it was a constant thing, especially when they were uh, in the midst of difficult times or in a time when they wanted to know what God was doing next. They missed the Lord in the fasted. It says, the Holy Spirit said, now separate to me Barnabas and Saul. The Holy Spirit said. How did that happen? 
Did you hear all of a sudden hear this voice saying, It's me, the Holy Spirit. That could have happened, I guess. It's not as if we don't have other places in Scripture where God seems to have spoken with an audible voice. He could have spoken with an audible voice. These guys were prophets and teachers. It could have been that God spoke through a prophetic word. We're going to see this later on uh, in, in Acts 21, where God speaks prophetically through a guy named Agabus. We've already seen that already with Agabus, haven't we? We don't know. The text doesn't say. But what a text does say, what Luke does say, is it was the Holy Spirit speaking. The Holy Spirit communicated something specific. Now, this is important. It's important because this is the kind of verse, one of the reasons why we as Servants Church are charismatic by conviction. And what I mean by that is that we see in the testimony of Scripture, both described and prescribed, is that God speaks to us, yes, through His Word primarily, and we only recognize if it's God's voice by what we see in the testimony of Scripture, but He does speak to us directly. And we don't want to, we don't want to discount that. We don't want to discount that God can speak to us directly, whether it's through prophecy or through whatever the, the case might be. Now what's interesting here, it says the Holy Spirit spoke and the Holy Spirit said, whether it's, again, however he did it, he said, I want you to separate uh, Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Called them, past tense. So you get this sense that the Holy Spirit had already kind of placed on their hearts or, or, or put an inclination on them to go out and do something fresh, to go do this new ministry. Now, I think this is important because this is one of the things, again, especially about wanting to know if the Holy Spirit is speaking directionally. I am quite suspicious of prophecies where someone says, I think the Lord's saying that, Ollie, you're supposed to go do this. And all is going, whoa, that's news to me. Oh, okay, God, if I'm supposed to do that. I'm quite suspicious of that. Because I think if God's going to speak about somebody doing something, he's going to tell them first. That would make perfect sense to me. And this seems to be the indication. He's saying, I have called them. Like this wasn't a surprise to them. It's also kind of cool because you get the sense that Paul and Barnabas, at least in the book of Acts, they're the highlighted guys. The rest of these guys aren't ever talked about except right here. So these probably were the guys that were the noteworthy leaders in the church. And God's sending out the best. He's sending out the, the leaders. He's not sending out some, you know, you know, flunky or some new guy who doesn't really know anything yet. He's saying, okay, those guys who are, who God's really using, I want you to take those guys and I want you to send them out. I'm going to send them out somewhere else. So I'm saying this because Adam and I are leaving to plan a new church next week. I'm just kidding. I just wanted to say that. Now, what I'm saying is, is that it's interesting that this is what's happening. It seems to me that as the Holy Spirit uh, sends people out, He sends people out who are already serving in a local way, and He uses the people they're serving with to get them sent out. So in other words, what you have here is what I, what I think are kind of the three basic steps that the Holy Spirit does, or that God does, to send people out. One, there's this indiv- the individual's inclination, where the person senses that, yeah, I think God's leading me this direction. Or the, the people sense, I think God's leading us in this direction. And then you have this, what we might call the Spirit's uh, consecration. Because what does he say? Now separate to me, Barnabas and Saul. Where there's a sense that these guys have an inclination of, of, of what maybe God might be having them do sometime in the future. And then there's this, this, this next sense where God's the Spirit is saying, 
These guys are meant to do something. They, they are being pulled towards a certain direction. They're being, uh, it's being confirmed by people that, yeah, th- these guys are obviously gifted for this kind of ministry. And then what happens is, after the Holy Spirit speaks this, it says, then them having fasted and prayed, I don't know if they prayed and fasted again, or if it's just reference to what they were already doing, but having fasted and prayed, they laid hands on them and they sent them out. You have the church's confirmation. So you have the individual's inclination, the spirit's consecration, and then the church's confirmation. And this is how we see people sent out. Now, for you guys who have a more formal church background, that's not a big deal to you. But for me, coming from a very individualistic church background, coming from, uh, you know, from Calvary chapels and sort of independent churches that kind of everyone just kind of be led by the Lord, a charismatic stream, just be led by the Lord, bro, just do what the Lord leads you to do, and everyone kind of does their own thing. I've seen disaster after disaster after disaster, and I think a lot of that is because people aren't actually being led by the Spirit. It's not the Spirit sending them out, it's themselves sending themselves out. So how do we know? Well, we know because we're serving locally. We're being faithful to what God's calling us to do right now. And if we're being faithful to what God's calling us to do right now, and we're serving together with our teams, and we're having good gospel-centered relationships that are turning into good mission, and we're going, growing through that process, then God begins to put on our hearts the next steps. And the Spirit begins to set us apart for those next steps. And then the church confirms that, and we send people out saying, Amen, God's doing this. Does that make sense? Please don't think I'm saying that you have to go step by step through the servant's church process or God's not calling you. I'm not saying that at all. What I'm trying to say is I think there's a principle described here that when the Holy Spirit sends out, He first has people serve locally and for these reasons. So that's the first thing I think we need to learn. Learning how to serve locally. The second thing is this, learning the priority of the Word. Look at verse 4. It says, so being sent out, notice by the Holy Spirit. It doesn't say sent out by the church. Sent out by the Holy Spirit. They went down to Seleucia, and from there they, they sailed to Cyprus. And when they arrived in Salamis, they preached the word of God in the synagogues to the Jews. Now, you might be saying, okay, how do they know to go to Cyprus? How do they know they're supposed to go to that place? Well, who knows? Now, we know Barnabas was some, from Cyprus. It could have been Barnabas going, hey, it's a nice island, really good scuba diving there. We should go. The falafels are amazing. That's where we should be. I mean, who knows? The point is, I think, is that it doesn't really matter so much. The priority is not uh, where they went, but what they did when they got there. I really wrestled when God was calling me to England because I really thought, why England? I mean, seriously, why can't I just stay in Southern California? I'm from Southern California. Where I was living in Southern California was not nice. At all. I'm serious. It was a horrible place to live. Nor it's just a thousand times better than when we were living in California. It was a horrible place to live. And I loved it there. I, I was going to live the rest of my life. Why, God? Why? So I really wrestled with this. In fact, so much so that I remember talking to my friend Rob Dingman about the issue and he, uh, over the phone. And him saying, you know, John, I don't think God cares where you go. He cares about who you follow. Do you want to follow him? Or do you want to follow your own inclinations? Well, what do you want to do? And I thought, okay, Lord, that's the it. I feel like you're calling me there. You're not telling me why you're calling me there. It's just, I feel like you, it's you who are doing this. And even if I don't understand why or even, or even what's going to actually happen, I know what you'd want me to do if I go there. You want me, if I go there, 
to show Jesus and share Jesus with people. That's what you want me to do. You want me to, to proclaim the word of God. That's what you want me to do. Now, the thing is, God might call me somewhere else. It really doesn't matter where God calls us. God, God can make that clear. It's what are we doing. That's the priority. That's why I think the Bible doesn't make a big deal about where they went. Well, they get to Cyprus. And at first they, they arrive on this island, Salimus. Now here's where the map comes in. Here we go. Ready? So, that's Antioch. This is where those five guys, the team was serving together. Okay. So they kind of make this about 20-mile trek down to Seleucia, which is the... Uh, the port city, they take the boat to Salimus, and this is where they are right now. They're in Salimus. And as they're in Salimus, what does it say they do? They preach the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews. Now here's what they did. There was the, the culture of the synagogues was, if you, if, when the Jewish uh, people would come to synagogues, the Jewish men, of course, had the prime seats, they sat there. The leader of the synagogue, if he noticed somebody who was well known, and, and, and it could be by the way they're addressed, okay? Or it could be, uh, you, know, you know, just by reputation. But like, say, in Paul's case, Paul, who had been a Sadducee, he would have wore a certain type of garb. So maybe they saw that he had a certain type of garb on, clothing on, so they thought, oh, he's a Sadducee. He's a guy who's well-known. Maybe they just knew him by reputation. Barnabas was a Levite. So he was from the priestly line. So he would have maybe possibly had dressed in a certain way or maybe have told somebody, oh yes, I'm Barnabas, I'm a Levite. Or, well, I'm Saul, I used to be in the Sanhedrin, you know. And what would happen though, they were using that situation because what they would do is they'd say, brothers, honorable brothers, would you please come share a word? So they go, oh, well, if I must. <laughs> and they would come forward and a total, have a total chance to share the gospel. So that's what they would do. They'd go into the synagogues. And this is important because, remember, one of the things about the book of Acts is is showing how the church, by the power of the Spirit, fulfilled the Great Commission, going out with the gospel. And sometimes thinking about going out with the gospel, we can kind of, well, especially when we start seeing how important it is that we get out of the church and preach the gospel, we start thinking of, yeah, and it's kind of like almost a compromise to keep going back in the church. But actually, what these guys did was they went to the synagogue and they preached the word, they preached the gospel of Jesus to religious people. In other words, reaching the lost includes preaching the gospel to religious people. This is one of the reasons why we have a prayer meeting or we have a time of prayer, a little group of people that go to pray before service. Because there's always unbelievers at the church almost every Sunday, especially at church like ours. We get so many visitors, international students. There's almost, I can't think of a Sunday, maybe the, the week after Christmas. Or even then, there's probably international students there that don't know Jesus yet. Well, there's not unbelievers. So now, I'm saying that not because I want to at all discourage us from going out. I'm really thankful that, that God put it heavy on Joe's heart and other guys' hearts to make sure that we had a monthly outreach. And I'm really thankful that, 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 Almost every week, I think, if not every week, Will goes out in the street and does evangelism. I'm really thankful that, that they, those guys do it, and we as a church are going to try to do more of that. But let's not forget, it's also preaching to the lost when we're trying to preach to religious people. And so listen, these guys did this, right? So they go out, they preach to these religious people, and it says at the end of verse 5 that they also had John, this is John Mark, with them. Now, John Mark's going to come uh, be a point of controversy uh, in, in future weeks. We'll get to him later on. But it's interesting because it says they had John Mark or John as their assistant. 
And the word for assistant there is a word that means under rower. Have you ever seen one of those old movies, like from biblical times, like the old Roman movies, and you see, you see like the slaves in the bottom of the ship, you know, and they're rowing to the, the drum beat. Dun, dun, dun. You know what I'm talking about? The row and row. You know what I'm talking about? Ben-Hur, that kind of thing. Come on. I've seen Ben-Hur. It's a great movie. Anyway, that's what an under rower was. They're the ones that moved the ship forward. They moved, they're the ones that moved the ship. The guys on top, they steered the ship, but this guy moved the ship. If you don't got the guys pulling the oars, the ship ain't going anywhere. Well, John Mark was an under rower. In other words, John Mark was a guy who was freeing up uh, Barnabas and Saul so that they could preach the gospel. Now, he might have done some preaching himself. But the truth is, is that really as an under rower, he was freeing up these guys to preach. The reason I bring this up is, when we're talking about the priority of preaching the word, it doesn't mean necessarily that you do the preaching. Sometimes it's helping the guys who are doing the preaching. Sometimes it means taking a burden off of them. So that like when Adam teaches this morning, I'm thinking, okay, what would Adam maybe do that maybe I can do instead so that he can just think about that? And vice versa. Do you see what I'm saying? That there's, there's a need for underrows. And it's more than that. It, it's like, when say, if I'm out in the street with Will, and I see Will's having just a great conversation, what can I do? Do, do I need to butt in there? Oh, i got to preach to you. i got something good to say. Or do I just need to shut up and pray? God, help Will. Give him wisdom. Open this guy's heart. Or someone might come to distract. They might say, hey, let's have a conversation over here. You know what I'm saying? This is what I mean. So there's, there's this mindset that says, okay, if the priority is, is the word being communicated, we don't just want to see the gospel demonstrated, but also communicated. If that's the priority, preaching the word, if that's what we have to learn to do, let's learn to make sure that happens, whatever we can do. That's why, listen, when you volunteer for Sunday school, do you realize that's what you're doing? Not just that you're prioritizing teaching those kids something, but you're allowing their parents to hear something. Do you know how hard it is to listen to a sermon when your kid's going, ah, where's my cheese crackers? It's so hard. So when you're taking care of those kids and giving them the cheese crackers, they're, they're, they are, you're being an under rower so people can hear the gospel. You, we have to think of it that way. Because sometimes we can think, oh, that's not that important. It's not, oh, that's, that's, that's less important than the actual preaching. No, it's not. Absolutely not. So we need to learn that, the priority of the word of God. Not just the guys who preach it, but what are we going to do to make sure that it can be heard. Quickly, last thing. We need to learn to battle through resistance. The, the bottom line is, as sent people in a foreign land, we're going to experience resistance. Okay? What happens to these guys? Verse 6. Now when they had gone through the island of pa- uh, gone through the island to Paphos, so in other words, they go from Salimus over here to Paphos. Okay? When they go to the island of Paphos, they found a certain sorcerer, a false prophet, a Jew, whose name was Bar-Jesus. Uh, they also found this guy, he was with, Bar-Jesus was this, this guy, Sergius Paulus, who's described as the pro-council, but also described as an intelligent man. So there's just two characters that are introduced in the scene, okay? Sergio, uh, Sergius Paulus, this is kind of a cool little side note, the fact that he's described, Luke describes him as a pro-council, is one of the things, one of the little details in the book of Acts that most people wouldn't notice. I mean, I didn't even know, I didn't notice this either. But when you begin to kind of look at historical references, this is just kind of underscores what a great historian Luke was. Because the idea that there would have been a pro-council at this time was kind of foreign to what we knew 
about that area of the world. Because a proconsul basically was someone who was in charge of an area uh, that reported directly to the Roman Senate. And so basically, that was kind of a foreign concept. And so when uh, this idea of proconsul came up, a lot of uh, a, a lot of uh, archaeologists and biblical historians thought, okay, historians and such would thought, okay, how does this work? It's come to find out that Luke is not just being accurate, he's being minutely accurate, which kind of just shows what a great historian he was. Shows us why we can trust the scripture. But the point was, it says that we know this guy was a very powerful man, we know this guy was a very intelligent man, and we know that this guy, notice it says in verse uh, 7, he was seeking to hear the word of God. Now, the scene happening here, you might read the scene as like, these guys went to visit him, they couldn't get to him, and then Paul does this crazy sort of miracle, and then, then they hear, then he hears the gospel. But you get actually the scene is, they, they sort of meet this guy who's a sorcerer. Through the sorcerer, it seems, they meet the proconsul, and as they begin to share the gospel with the proconsul, that's when the hesitation comes in. Okay, this is that's important to understand because if that's what the context is bearing out, it, it, it sets the context for how Paul brought the confrontation. So you have the Sergius Paulus guy, proconsul, very intelligent man, and wants to hear what God's word says. But you also have this guy Bar Jesus, which just means son of Jesus. Now don't see that as in connecting to Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus is a very common was a very common name. Joshua is a very common name today. All right. You know, when we say Jesus of Nazareth, that has meaning to us because we know who we mean historically and what he's done. But in that day, it would have been like saying Bob of Enfield. It wouldn't have meant that much, you know. Very common thing, okay? So, so when he says Bar Jesus, just means son of Jesus. But it's interesting because here's what we know about him. He was a sorcerer. He was like Simon the Magician. He was doing sort of magical arts. He was doing occult, using occult powers and such. He was a false prophet, a pseudo-prophet. That's someone who says they're speaking in the name of God, but they are not. And also says that uh, he was a Jew. So it could have been that they met this guy, thought he was a Jew, kind of sensing something's dodgy about him, but there's an open door now to speak to somebody who's not a Jew, he's not a God-fearer, he's just a pagan who wants to hear the Word of God. And so when they begin to share the Word of God, Bar-Jesus tries to get in the way. He doesn't want, it says that he he was seeking to turn the pro-council away from the faith. Why? Because it's Competition. He had this influence. He doesn't want the gospel influence in him. This is what the cults don't want. The cults don't want the truth to get out. And so what happens, right? Saul, who Luke tells us, reminds us, he's also called Paul. Saul's his Hebrew name. Paul would have been more of his Roman name. He's filled with the Holy Spirit. And then he says these really harsh words to, uh, to this false prophet. He says to him, Oh, full of deceit and all fraud, you son of the devil. Even when I start saying son of a... We start thinking, oh man, that's harsh. Son of the devil, right? How long will you, or will you not cease perverting the straight ways of the Lord? Now we look at this, and if Luke wouldn't included and filled with the Spirit, we would have thought, man, Paul's in the flesh. <laughs> Dude, Paul's losing his... He's losing his cool here. But Luke makes it clear. The Holy Spirit makes it clear. Paul is in the Spirit. He's full of God's Spirit when he tells this guy off. Now, it's, it's important for us to recognize something here, okay? And that is that harshness or being harsh in our language does not equal being unloving necessarily. Now, 
as you guys become parents, okay, and you raise kids, it's going to happen from, for, for you guys here, if it hasn't happened yet, most of you are going to raise kids someday. As you raise kids, here's what you're going to experience. They're going to frustrate you. They're going to do things wrong, and they're going to need a harsh word. And they need a harsh word, not because you're frustrated, but because they need to learn that it's serious what they're doing. And they need to learn it's serious because you love them and you don't want them to do things that are bad. Now, if, in case you think that doesn't sound like Jesus, let me be really clear about this. Here's what Jesus says. Jesus said to, these are the Pharisees, these are the religious leaders he's talking to. He says, if God were your father, you'd love me. For I proceeded forth and came from God, nor have I come of myself, but God, he sent me. Notice what Jesus says. You are of your father, the devil. And the desires of your father you want uh, to do. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in truth because there's no truth in him. When he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own authority, for he is a liar and the father of it. So Jesus is basically saying, you're liars, your dad's the devil, and this is why you want to kill me. Jesus said that. But he's so, he, Jesus is loving. He would never say something like that. He's too nice. No. Because he loved the Pharisees, he said, you guys think you're right with God, but your father is not God the Father. He's the devil. Now, the reason I'm bringing this out is not because I want to encourage you now to go around saying, you're of the devil. You're of the devil. That's not going to be very productive. But there is a parallel here between who Jesus called out like this and who Paul the Apostle called out like this. Not just any old unbeliever or some person pulled into a false faith because that happens with all kinds of people now this is someone who's purposely trying to keep someone else from seeing the gospel hey if somebody doesn't want to believe in jesus we we respect their choice we try to convince them persuade them to believe in jesus but there's a difference between someone who's saying you know i don't believe in this jesus stuff and someone saying no don't tell that person i don't want them to hear about this jesus stuff either that person sometimes needs a good rebuke as the holy spirit leads The point is this, when we're talking about learning to battle through resistance, there's some things we need to understand. First and foremost is, opportunity always comes with resistance. This is why the Bible says in 1 Corinthians 16.9, Paul talks about a great and effective door is open to me, but what? And there are many adversaries. Those two things almost always go together. If God has opened the door for ministry, guess what's going to happen? There's going to be adversaries. There's going to be resistance. Every time. Opportunity always brings resistance. We've got to know that. But also... We need to know, okay, that God wants us to, to, to preach the word anyway. It's interesting about this guy's, uh, about the, the sort of curse or the, or the, the miracle that, that Paul performs here. It says that Paul says, Now the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you shall be blind, not seeing the sun for a time. It, it, there seems to be maybe a sense that Paul sees in Bar-Jesus something of himself before he got saved. Because what, what was Saul doing? He was killing Christians, trying to keep people from believing in Jesus. And what did God do when God knocked him off the high horse? He blinded him. It was like, it, it was as if Paul said, you know what? You stubborn idiot. You're doing the same thing I did. You know what? God make you blind too. Boom. And God does this miracle. And physically blinds this guy. Look, you want to be spiritually blind? Fine. I hope God makes you, I pray now in Jesus' name that you be physically blind so you understand your blindness. That's part of love, is, is calling somebody out, especially someone who's doing this kind of stuff. Now, 
It's also interesting because what happens is he does this, when Paul does this, and this darkness falls on his eyes, it says, then the proconsul believed when he saw what had been done. And again, you kind of get initial impression is, oh, he saw the miracle, so he believed based on the miracle. But what does it say? Listen. He believed being astonished at what? The teaching of the Lord. In other words... What happened was, just like it says in Mark chapter 16, these guys went out, they preached everywhere. What happened? The Lord worked with them, confirming the word through accompanying signs. So this sign, this sort of, and this was not a happy sign, was it? It was not a grand healing or, oh, guess what? God provided. Thank you for praying for me, church. You know, this was like, now you're blind because you're the son of the devil, right? But still, it was a powerful sign. And that powerful sign confirmed the truth of the gospel that Paul and Barnabas preached compared to the false gospel that Bar-Jesus was preaching. And so it was confirming that sign. But what actually brought faith? The teaching, the word of God. This is an important thing. It's an important thing because in one sense, we don't want to stop praying. Uh, we, well, we can't. We need to keep praying, God, would you give us strength? Would you give us boldness? Would you give us power? Would you even confirm the word of the signs and wonders following? Not because we think, okay, there's not a miracle, then that message must not be of God. Obviously, we don't think that. But we do want to see God you know, confirm his word with a demonstration of his power. Now, often the demonstration of power that God calls us to or that God does through us is just a laying down of our lives for somebody. It's just a demonstration of the gospel where people see that there's a love that is spiritually produced, that, that it's, it's bigger than natural love. That people are, we're loving people that we wouldn't naturally love. Okay, That confirms the word as well. But what brings faith? What produces faith? What's the Word of God say? The Bible says, so faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. It's the message. In other words, if to learn to, part of learning to battle through resistance is to continue to preach the Word, to keep sharing the message with people, teaching with all patience, like Paul says to Timothy, and trying to explain to people, well, this is why we believe. This is what we believe. That's how this thing's happened. So, this is what we need to learn as we're being sent out. We need to learn to serve locally. We need to learn the priority of the word. And we need to learn to battle through resistance. Amen.